chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to them, Go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might restore him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. 
And he turned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now we pause and we give attention to your word. Lord, like Joseph, it would be easy for many of us to doubt that the Lord is with us. And yet we will learn this morning that uh, even though we cannot see your work in our lives, it does not mean you're not working. It simply means that we are human. It means that we are myopic. And it means that we have neither the sense nor the spiritual well-being to discern the ways in which you are working in our lives. So, Lord, bless our time now, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we return to the book of Genesis, we encounter an old friend. If you grew up in church, you have certainly heard the story of Joseph. If you didn't grow up in church... You may still know of Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, thanks to Andrew Lloyd Webber. This is a rich narrative. The story of Joseph runs from Genesis chapter 37 clear to the end of the book, Genesis chapter 50. It's the longest narrative about a single character in the entire book of Genesis. Now Moses tells this particular story with subtle skill. And we must note the purpose and intention of doing so. Moses writes and tells the story with subtlety because God's work is subtle. There are no miracles in the Joseph story. No seas get parted. There's no pillar of fire at night or cloud by day. There's no manna. Frogs don't get turned into anything. Axe heads don't float. God does not suspend his natural law in order to make things happen. Joseph's story instead is a story about God working his will in everyday life. God's way in Joseph's story is hidden, but it is sure. Let me say that again. God's way is hidden, but it is sure. In fact, it's not until the end of the story that Joseph himself can see just how God has been working through all of the events and all of the circumstances in his life. Now, some of those things we're going to see, Joseph didn't necessarily have anything to do with them. 
Joseph, like all of us, has to live in a fallen world. Joseph, like all of us, has to deal not just with his own sin, but with the sins of others. That brings us then to our big idea for this morning. The big idea is this. The schemes of a fallen world cannot overcome the sovereign call and work of God. The schemes of a fallen world cannot overcome the sovereign call and work of God. Two points we want to make this morning. And the points coincide with the different scenes that we're going to find in the text. First, we see that uh, Joseph is favored by his father, small f, and father, capital F. Now, we need to understand as we come to Genesis chapter 37 that the family Joseph grew up in put the dis in dysfunctional. This, uh, this is a family that's Jerry Springer worthy. In fact, they'd probably get their own week. It would be like Jacob's family week on Jerry Springer. His, Jacob, as we know, as, as you may recall, Jacob uh, does not have uh, one wife. He has two wives. And he doesn't just have children from the two wives. He has children actually from four different women. His wives, Leah and Rachel. And then two maidservants named Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, if you remember the story, you know that Jacob, in order to uh, escape his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him for stealing his birthright, Jacob flees and goes to his uncle Laban. And he works seven years in order to be able to marry the woman that he loves, in order to be able to marry Rachel. However, on his, the, the morning after his wedding, he discovers that it's not Rachel that he's been given in marriage, it's her sister Leah. And the Bible uh, is, it doesn't hide such things, but it does so very tactfully. It tells us that Leah had weak eyes. In other words, she's not pretty, where Rachel, on the other hand, is tremendously pretty. That's the beginning of the issues in Jacob's family. Rachel cannot have children, though she is greatly loved by her husband. Leah, however, uh, every time Jacob looks at her, it seems Leah gets pregnant. And so one wife is favored in the eyes of the culture. The other wife is looked down upon because she cannot provide children. Rachel, in her desperation, then gives Jacob her maidservant. Leah, not to be outdone because she's equally desperate, gives her maidservant as well. And so you have 10 of the 12 sons born to Jacob coming from these two maidservants and Leah. And then finally, the Bible tells us that the Lord hears Rachel's prayers and he opens her womb. The first to be born from Rachel is Joseph. The second to be born by Rachel costs Rachel her life. It is Joseph's full brother, Benjamin. Now, in Genesis chapter 33, we read of a particular kind of reunion. And in the reunion that's going to happen, it's, it's Esau, who hates his brother, is going to confront Jacob. Jacob, knowing this and hearing of, of his brother's exploits and hearing of his brother's power and might, makes a strategic decision. He sends flocks and servants ahead as they're going to meet. And then he organizes his family, but he does so in a particular way. 
He takes the two maidservants and their children, and he puts them in the front. And then he takes Leah and her children and puts them next. And then at the very end, he puts Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now the thinking, of course, is that if Esau means him harm, Esau can take the flocks and the herds and that's fine. He can go ahead and slaughter the maidservants and their children, that's fine. Leah and the kids at least get put back a piece, but it's obvious to everyone involved who Jacob is trying to protect. He wants to protect Rachel. He wants to protect Joseph. He wants to protect Benjamin. So friends, it should not surprise us in Genesis chapter 37 when three different times we are told in the first 11 verses that Joseph's brothers hated him. Did you note that? Verse 4, they hated him and couldn't speak peacefully to him. Verse 5, after he tells them the dream, they hated him even more. Verse 8, so they hated him even more. And then in verse 11, just for good measure, and they were jealous of him. Some of that is Joseph's doing, but not all of it. You see, all of this family dysfunction, all of this family drama, all of, this, all of the, the, what's going on here, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Joseph. Now, he puts in his two cents worth. And verses 1 to 4, we're told that Jacob sends Joseph off to bring a report of his brothers. And so he goes, we're told in verse 2, he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brings a bad report of them to their father. Now, one of the things that pastors and even some commentators have done in the past is they feel the need because there are a lot of ways in which the life of Joseph mirrors later on the life of Jesus. And so we have this need for whatever reason to make it appear as though Joseph is sinless. He's not. In fact, the Bible tells us that there's no unrighteous, no, not one, but we seem to forget that whenever we talk about Joseph. Well, the Hebrew word that it's used for report in the ESV is a word that could also be translated tattling. Joseph has some bit of information that he can come and he can strengthen his own position with his father even though he doesn't need it and he can narc on his brother's who do not like him. And so Joseph does a very understandable, very human thing. He shows up and gives a bad report. He tattles on his brothers. Now, the kind of favoritism that's in this particular family is something that in other places the Bible refers to as a generational sin. I wonder this morning, if something similar isn't true in your family. I realize this is to go from preaching to meddling, but I have seen in my own extended family what happens when a loved matriarch or a loved patriarch gives voice 
to favor of one part of the family over another. Look, we all understand you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friends' noses. That's actually not the statement. The statement is you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. And there are ways in which our families drive us completely crazy. Uh, and we, we, we get that. That's part of it. But to show favoritism, not based on merit, but to show favoritism based in this instance purely on who uh, Joseph's mother was. I understand why the older brothers hate Joseph. I understand why they seek to do him harm. And friends, I think this morning we need to pause and ask ourselves, uh, do we show that kind of favoritism in our own family? The joke growing up was always that we all thought we were our mom's favorite. It's not true. We know it's my little brother. But we all thought that. And I'm, I, I just, I wonder how much of our, uh, sometimes, and, and I get, we have family members who are just a pain in the rear end. Uh, we are raising young adults. They're annoying. See, they want to be treated like adults, but they're not very good at it yet. And so when your 21-year-old deigns to tell you how the world works, it gets old. I get it. I want to suggest to you this morning, graciously and lovingly and hopefully pastorally, that if the Lord is convicting you of a particular kind of favoritism that you've shown, let me just suggest that you just go to the person and you repent. It would have meant much to me and to my cousins if in my extended family, one of my family members would have simply said, listen, I've shown favoritism. It's wrong. Please forgive me. We would have. Absolutely, we would have. But for whatever reason, repentance was never given. Forgiveness was never given. And it remains, to this day, something that I regret. Now, it's not as though everyone doesn't realize that Joseph is the favorite. But Jacob goes a step further. He solidifies and makes known in a way that is irrefutable that Joseph is the favorite. The coat of many colors that he gives him is not a fashion statement. It's not simply saying, hey, the rest of you have to wear Wranglers and we're going to give uh, we're going to we're going to outfit uh, Joseph in polo. No, that's not what's going on. Uh, what's the statement that's being made is not a fashion statement. It's a legal statement. You see, this particular kind of garment, this particular kind of coat, was given to the son who was expected to receive the double portion. 
It's given to the son who would have been legally the heir, the one who was in first place and would have expected to inherit most of his father's holdings, estate, and and all that is entailed that gets passed down from generation to generation. In this instance, it should have been Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. Reuben was the son born to Leah. But Jacob wants to let everyone know that no, the one getting the double portion when all is said and done is not the firstborn of Leah. It's the firstborn of Rachel. Joseph is going to get the double portion. That's how Jacob fathers Joseph's rejection. He shows all of this favoritism. There's this entire dysfunctional, broken, sinful family history. And then he simply adds fuel to the fire by giving him that jacket. So what's God doing in the midst of all this? God says, hey, you want to throw some fuel on the fire? I'll see you and raise you one. God calls Joseph to a particular task in an irrefutable manner. See, in the ancient Near East, it was understood that dreams come from God, or in some instances, folks believe that dreams came from the gods. And so in verses 5 to 11, please understand what we're seeing is God's call on Joseph's life. God is telling Joseph exactly what is waiting for him in his future. Whatever the role is going to be, however it's going to look like, that's yet to be figured out. But Joseph is going to be preeminent. His brothers are going to bow down to him, and not only his brothers, but also his father and his mother. So it's no surprise again that the brothers hate him. Not only has Joseph shown favor by Jacob, but God is now showing particular favor to Joseph in a way that the other brothers simply are not receiving. Now, apparently, Jacob and Joseph are blind to this. They don't get what's going on because if they figured out what was going on, verse 13 doesn't make any sense. Why would you send your son whom you love uh, basically 60 some odd miles away in the hands of his brothers who hate him? That's about a six or seven day journey from where they are uh, sojourning at that particular time. Why would you send him out to people who want to kill him if you claim to love him? Now, this is not the only time in the Bible that we're going to see that God's call on a younger sibling's life is going to create a particular kind of tension. In 1 Samuel, we're told uh, that as God rejects Saul to be king of Israel, he then sends Samuel to Bethlehem and says, hey, uh, there's a new king. I need you to anoint for me a new king. So he goes, he leads him to the house of Jesse. He says to Jesse, I need to see your boys. First boy comes up, his name's Eliab. He's tall, he's good looking. He's straight out of central casting for the part of the new king. Samuel says, this has got to be the one. And God says, no, you're looking at the outward appearances. I look at the heart. Okay, he's not the one. How about the next one? They run through the line of the sons and he thinks he's seen all of them. Samuel says, hey, is there another boy yet? He says, well, yeah, but he's the run of the litter and he's out watching the sheep. 
So they call for David. And the Lord immediately lets Samuel know, this is the one. This is the one I need you to anoint. The, he's the one who's going to be king. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, when Saul takes Israel out to war against the Philistines, and the two sides are gathered up, and Goliath comes every day and challenges the armies of Israel and defies the living God of the Bible, and no one does anything, when David, much like Joseph, is sent by his father to check on his brother's well-being, and when David hears the taunts, he looks around and he says, hey, Who's going to deal with this? Is there anybody that's going to step up and uh, basically make this ungodly Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine, eat his words? And it's his older brother, Eliab, who looks at him and basically cheers him out and says, why are you even here? Aren't there sheep that you're supposed to be watching? I know you. You've come just to see the battle. You've come to see the gore. Friends, there are times in which God's call on the life of his people creates this kind of tension. It was true in Joseph's life. It's true in David's life. Now, let's understand that the rest of Joseph's future is going to be caught between these two things. He's caught between the hatred of his brothers and God's call and plan for his life. He's caught between his brother's hatred of him and the call and plan that God has for his life. So how is all this going to resolve itself? Well, that brings us to our second point. We see God's sovereign and mysterious work of providence. The brothers see him coming. And because we've been told three times already that they hate him, they decide, they come up with a plan. Let's kill him. Reuben says, no, that's not such a great idea. Reuben understands how the favoritism game works. Joseph is the favorite. And so if Reuben can restore Joseph to his father, then yes, Joseph will still be the favorite and then Benjamin. But Reuben can at least get in the top three. Reuben can medal in the family Olympics when it comes to who's the favorite. And yet, we see in the midst of this that God is at work in a particular way. But if we're not careful, we'll miss it. And if we're not careful, we won't see it because God is not mentioned. Nowhere in Genesis chapter 37 is the name of God mentioned even once. But I want us to give attention to something that's important but not obvious. Look at verses 15 and 17. Here's Joseph. He's traveled basically 50 miles to get to uh, Shechem. Now, Shechem is an important place. One of the things that happens in narrative is sometimes a place can serve as a character. Shechem is a rather notorious place in the life of Jacob's family. For Shechem was the place in which their sister Dinah was uh, was basically raped by a, a, a local chieftain. And so the brothers decide that they're going to have their vengeance. They negotiate a truce and they say to them, hey, listen, uh, we'll forgive you, but here's the deal. You need to marry our sister Dinah. In order for that to happen, all the males in your household need to be circumcised. They agree. They take the deal. While they are healing up from their circumcision, we're told that Judah and a couple of his brothers 
attack these guys and they wipe them out completely. Jacob, understandably, is not very happy. He says, listen, you're going to make me a stench in the nostrils of the Canaanites. And the brothers look at him rightly and say, hey, wait a minute, what were we supposed to do? They treated our sister like a prostitute. Were we just supposed to let that go? Shechem is where that happened. Shechem is where Joseph is going. But they're not in Shechem. Verse 15, And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, is there anything about that that strikes you as a little weird? You're in the place where your brothers have slaughtered half of the male inhabitants of the place. And some random dude just happens to say, oh yeah, I overheard your brothers are 15 miles away. And you decide in your wisdom that you're going to go ahead and take him at his word. Really? I mean, who is this guy? Why in the world should Joseph believe a word he says? How in the world does this guy, what, what's he doing? I heard your brother say, what? Well, friends, let's understand that it's God who is at work in this. There's a great po uh, quote from John Piper. I remember reading it in college, and then I heard it again uh, this past summer at Okaboji. Uh, Piper has said, you know, uh, God is at any given time doing about 10 different things in our lives. And if we're lucky, we're aware of probably four of them. God's at work doing probably 10 different thousand things in our lives. And if we're lucky, we're aware of maybe four of them. Well, that's what's going on here. And Moses uses this really interesting narrative device. There's a dude walking around the field who tells Joseph, hey, I overheard your brothers are going to be here. And he goes. And we're going, really? Who's that dumb? Well, Joseph is. But God is the one who's really at work. And so fast forward to the end of the story, we get to verse 36 of Genesis chapter 37, and we're told the Midianites sell him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And you're going, why would Moses include all of this? Well, he's including it to let us know what Stephen is going to affirm in Acts chapter 7. Did you hear the language that Stephen used? Keep your finger in Genesis 37, but turn back to Acts chapter 7. And we want to look particularly at verse 9. Acts chapter 7, let's look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, it's a kind way of saying, Moses tells us three times that they hated him, sold him into Egypt. And here's the phrase, if you're a Bible circler, a Bible underliner, you want to mark this. But God was with him. But God was with him. 
Friends, the $3 word for that is providence. God is doing something here that Joseph cannot grasp. God is doing something here that even the schemes and the machinations and the plotting and planning of the brothers who hate him cannot overcome. See, God has a plan in place to deliver Israel from famine. God has a plan in place to fulfill the word that he spoke in that uh, Stephen recognizes in Acts chapter 7, verse 6, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. How's that going to happen? How is God going to take all of these plans, all of these promises, how is he going to get his people into Egypt? Here you go. His name is Joseph. How is he going to get Joseph to Egypt? God is going to use the sin of Jacob. He's going to use the hatred of the brothers. He's going to use the naivete and the tattling of Joseph to get Joseph where he needs to be. And nobody has a clue what's going on. Nobody. I love the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Listen uh, to Westminster Catechism. This is question 11. It's what is God's work of providence? And here's the answer. God's work of providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and their actions. Friends, this is Providence 101. God has a plan. He's going to execute his plan. And God is God's providence is so holy, wise, and powerful that he's going to take even the hatred and the sin of Jacob and of Joseph's brothers. He's going to take jo Joseph's naivete and his tattling, and he's going to weave all of it together to get his people where he promised they needed to be. Said before that there are uh, often there are pastors and commentators who uh, speak of Joseph almost as though he's Jesus. Now, I disagree with that, but I understand why they would do it. They would do it because like Jesus... Joseph was despised and rejected by those who are his family. Joseph was a man of sorrows, as was Jesus. And God uses the despising, the rejection, and the sorrow to preserve and deliver his people. That's what we are proclaiming and remembering this morning as we come to the table. We are remembering that in his most amazing work of providence, God takes, as Peter says at Pentecost, God takes the work of lawless men that the Jews helped and aided to crucify God's son. And yet God takes that sin, God takes that rebellion, God takes that unjust act and uses it to redeem a people for himself. Rejected, despised, 
a man of sorrows, and God in his providence uses it to preserve and to deliver his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that uh, you're doing about 10,000 things in our lives at any one given moment, and yet we're maybe aware of four of them. Thank you that there is nothing that can thwart or stay your hand. Thank you that all of our schemes, all of our machinations, all of our plotting, all of the uh, evil that sought to be done in the world, Father, none of it uh, can change the end. The Lord Jesus will come again in power and majesty and glory and in judgment. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Period. End of story. Father, help us uh, not to see the works of providence, for we know such things are beyond us. But Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to trust in that. Help us to, to not live in fear. Lord, we... There's a sense in which our entire culture right now is paralyzed with this overwhelming sense of fear, either of uh, the wrong people exercising political power or we're afraid of COVID or we're, 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 just, we're, we're inundated with fear. Father, help us as your people uh, to live lives of humble trust and obedience. Knowing full well, as we see in the life of Joseph, that our God reigns and his providence cannot be thwarted. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.